listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, today we are beginning a brand new series. Last week, we closed up walking through the book of 1 Peter. And ever so often, we will kind of pause from what we typically do of walking through a book of the Bible, and we will simply take an idea, a topic, and we will try to exegetically preach on that. And so our series that uh, really I thought we were going in one direction and we began meeting, we in fact, we brought our wives in and we began brainstorming an idea of marriage and parenting. But we didn't want it to be one that you kind of look at and you go, well, this doesn't pertain to me. I'm not married or I don't have children. We landed on an idea of grace, not law. And what we have seen from this is we have been studying and we have been praying that this idea of grace and law, we live it every day. You can live your life according to law, meaning you're going to do things that will earn me things. You're going to act a certain way to earn people's acceptance. You're going to do things that you think gains you something. Or you live your life by grace that says, because of who I am in Christ, then I need to do this or I need to do that. Or we can even portray this to other people with our children or our coworkers, our our friends that, you know, as long as you do things for me, then I'll reward you this way. Or we can live our lives according to grace. It says, because of who you are, I will treat you a certain way. But what we are going to do, we are going to take this idea of law and grace, and for the next six weeks, relate it to the ideas of marriage and parenting. But in a very general sense, and I believe no matter where you are, you'll be able to Relate this to your own life. But I thought I'd start off with something. I've learned many things about being a man, and I know a few things about women. So I'm going to take just a couple of moments, and I'm going to let you in on what I have learned being on this earth 40-some-odd years and being married for 20-some-odd years. Uh, let, let me help the women out first. Men like to grill because we will cook as long as danger is involved. That's how we work. Women, we are so confident that when we watch sports on television, we think if we concentrate enough that we can actually help our teams win. We believe that. Something else you need to know, all men, we don't understand and we are deathly afraid of the eyelash curler. We don't understand it. You want to torture us? Just come at us with those eyelash curlers. Men forget everything. Women remember everything. That's why there's instant replay in sports. We need to be reminded about what just happened. And here's the last one for, for our ladies. The best way to get a man to do something is to suggest he's too old to do it. It's the only thing Marla has to do. Mm, that, you know, you can probably hurt your back trying to do that. Just watch me. You know, prove something. Just tell us that we're too old. So, men, here's your help. I'll give you some insights into the women around you. Women don't mind if you look into the mirror and check your appearance. In fact, they say, please do that from time to time. Everyone would benefit from it. Cleaning the house is not necessarily woman's work. Besides, most of the dirt and clutter is ours anyway. Please don't drive, women tell us, when you're not driving. That one's a hard one. Women, 
uh, or for us guys, she knows when your mom picked out the gift. So just be careful. She can tell when it was your mom that picked out that gift for her. Men, we need to understand this. She, doesn't, she wants to look nice for you. So don't tell her that every option that she tries on looks the same. They want to know our opinion. And here's the last one. And Marla actually wrote this one in for me, for us. She is not, meaning your wife, is not your mother. So don't expect her to baby you. So, you know, she even wrote that one in the love, Marla. So here's what we're going to do today. I want you to turn your Bibles to Colossians 3 with the idea in the back of your mind, grace, not law. And what we're going to do today is we're going to go to this passage. First of all, we need to see it in its context. We need to know what was going on. We want to make sure we understand it as the author needed the original readers to understand it before we ever get it to our life. And then at the end, we'll apply that to the area of marriage because I believe this is exactly what Paul has in mind today. Because this section, if you've turned to Colossians chapter 3, look at what's the next section after verse 17. It's that real famous passage about wives submitting and husbands loving. So I believe that Paul... He has got that on his mind. He has writing to the church, but I believe because it comes right before that section, he has got the idea of marriage in mind. So let me give you a little background. Paul is writing this letter to the church of Colossae as he's sitting in prison in Rome. Paul has never visited this church, but what has happened, a man named Epaphras traveled to Ephesus to hear Paul. He hears about this man, he travels to Ephesus, he hears the gospel, he responds to that. Then he goes all the way back to Colossae, and he plants a church there. Several years are going on, and false teaching starts rising up in this church, and Ephesus goes to and writes to Paul to say, Paul, I need your help. This is what's happening in our church. Can you advise us here? And what was happening, there was a false teaching called asceticism that was happening during this time, this teaching would say this that yes, Jesus is a great man, we should follow him, but if you really want to become accepted by God, it's all about a severe self discipline. If you can do without any indulgences, if you can fast better than anyone else, if you can do without modern day conveniences better than anyone else, then you arrive at a place of spiritual enlightenment. It's very close that Buddha followed this. So this is coming up in the church, and um, Epaphras writes to Paul and says, I need your help in how we go about defending, how do we go about making sure our people are believing the right things. So this belief that Paul is going to write against is focusing on the law, meaning what man can do, what I can accomplish to be accepted by God. So Paul writes to show us, that acceptance before God is not based at all on your self-discipline. It's not based at all about what you can do and how you can keep the law. It's based on grace. Very simply, you know what Paul's going to say? He's going to say, Jesus is enough. That all you need for complete 100% acceptance before God is Jesus Christ. His grace is God's favor to undeserving sinners. And if people are saved on the basis of their merit or their works, 
No one is ever going to be saved. It's all done by God's grace. So this morning, we will see this truth transformation happen in the lives, hopefully our own lives, in our relationships, because Paul's going to show us we need to be clothed in grace, not law. Beginning in verse 12. Put on, as God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And Paul says to put on. And what he's just gotten finished doing, look back maybe to verse 7. What Paul has just told them to do is what to take off. He says, take off, I think, seven things he lists. He says, anger, malice, slander, wrath, obscene talk, lying. He says, don't do those things. Take those things off and leave them where they are. But before Paul ever gets to the very first garment that you're to put on, he starts with an identity. Paul wants to make sure that the church knows that it begins not with what you put on. It begins with your identity. Your clothes do not give you your identity. Meaning you could dress up all day long like Luke Skywalker. And you will never be a Jedi. But if you are a Jedi, you will then dress as a Jedi would dress. Your identity doesn't come by what you put on. But it is a reflection of your identity. And look at what he says. He's going to give you three things that he wants to make sure that you know and believe about your identity. One, he says, God's chosen ones. Meaning, he says, church, you have been set apart. We are not our own. We belong completely to him. Just like in a marriage ceremony. A woman, a man and woman come together they set themselves aside exclusively for each other. So Paul is showing that salvation sets the believer apart exclusively for Jesus Christ. He says, we are his. God says, you are mine. It starts with your identity and who you belong to. And then he says, holy. Meaning you are righteous. You are perfectly righteous based on what Jesus Christ did not on your own works and not on your own merit. And that's what Paul's pushing against. Because they said, no, you can do certain things and it will gain you a sense of spirituality. And he says, no, it is based solely on what Jesus Christ did. And so if you're in Christ, if you have put your faith and trust in him, you are holy as Jesus is holy. And then the last one, <coughs> he says, beloved. So you're chosen, meaning you're set apart. We belong to him. We are holy, we are perfect, and you're beloved. Meaning you are genuinely and passionately loved by God. But I've always asked the question, how much then? How much could God possibly love me? Because we live in a time, we live in a world that says, I have to earn your love. I have to do things that, that keep me in your graces. And I think a lot of times we translate that over to our relationship with God that says, as long as I keep doing certain things, then God will keep being good to me, and God will keep loving me, and God will keep his favor on me. But he says, how much do, does God really love you? He loves you as much as he loves his son. And he sees you as he sees his son. 
So he, Paul says it begins with your identity. Because you are chosen, because you are holy, and because you are loved. He says, now, now reflect that to everyone around you. And here's what he says to put on. Because of who you are, first one he says are compassionate hearts. It means caring about the hurting and caring about the broken. But it's more than, it's more than just a concern. In fact, this word means bowels of compassion, meaning it is something that is so far down in you, it is a part of who you are. And you almost can't help but to have a compassionate heart towards people because it is just such a part of you. It's, it's down in to you, and it is who you are. And this is kindness, meaning it's a readiness to do good even when it's undeserved. Meaning, showing kindness, being ready to help someone, even if they don't deserve it. I mean, I think back to that great example of, of David and Mephibosheth. Remember, David was up against Saul, and Saul had it out for David. God raises David up to be king, and years go by... And under the law and under the custom, a a king would basically take out all the other relatives, the male relatives of the king before him, to make sure no one ever come up against his rule. So David is reigning king, and he meets a crippled Mephibosheth. He realizes that he is of the lineage of Saul. He has every right to, to banish him from the king to do whatever he needs to do, but David shows him kindness. And then he says, compassionate hearts, kindness, and humility. We are to put on a a posture of lowliness and what it means to be a servant. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, it's not just thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. It simply means putting other people first. And then he says, put on meekness, meaning it's, it's how you approach people. It's coming into people's lives, but coming in in, in a tactful or maybe a, a gentle way. But, but meekness is not weakness. Meekness is, is power under control. And it, it's, it's like this. It's like a dad wrestling with his son, with a little son. You know, maybe not like Tate and Kent. I'm sure Tate could take him, but like me and Marcus, that it's, it's, I, we'll get on the floor and we'll wrestle, but, but I'm restraining. I know that I can't put my full weight on him. I know that I have to hold myself back. All the power is there, and one day it'll be gone, but all the power is there to, to be able to pin him down or whatever it is, but I, I'm restraining and I will let him tackle me. It's power, but under control. And then he says, patience. And that means, Long-suffering means to have a a long fuse. It's a mindset or an attitude that does not get angry quickly. It does not mean that you don't ever get angry. There is a righteous anger, but it's wrong to get angry quickly at the wrong things and for the wrong reasons. So Paul says because of who you are, because you are chosen because you're holy and because you're loved, then put on a compassionate heart. Put on kindness and humility and meekness and patience. I mean, can you see what that would be like if every one of us 
in this church who is constantly clothed that way. I mean, that's, those are garments that will transform any church. Paul is showing us that a church needs to be clothed in grace, not law. But he's not finished. Look at verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And he says the first thing is to bear with one another. Or yours might say forbearance. Bearing with one another means to put up with other people. That we should not give up because the struggle is hard. We are to bear with one another. Because listen, no one, no one is easy to be around all the time. Okay, now it's hard to imagine, but I, I, I have to know for my own sanity that there have to be maybe two moments in her entire life that Karen Hudson would not be easy to get along with. I know it's hard to imagine, but no one can be easy to be around all the time. We're to bear with one another. <laughs> and then he says, <laughs> if one has a complaint against another. Obviously, Steve's there. If one has a complaint against another, it doesn't say go to them, even though we know Scripture says that. But notice what it says in church, let's be honest. We're all guilty of doing something or saying something that causes someone to have a complaint. There's always going to... No one's innocent of this. I know I've done my share, but notice that we are to do something because of our sinful states. We'll never be able to escape offending or upsetting someone. You're not going to do it. There's always going to be a time where you're going to offend or you're going to upset or you're going to hurt someone. But notice what it says. If you have a complaint against another, here's the command. Forgiving each other. That's it. What are we to do? The command is to forgive. We're not to hold things against people. We are to forgive them. So if I need to know how much I'm loved, I also want to know that how much do I need to forgive? Because I need to know where the, where the limit is. I need to know what the goal in this is. And Paul answers, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You are to forgive others as Christ has forgiven you. How much did Christ forgive you? He forgave you graciously. And he forgives you freely. And think about it, That's how we are now to look at all those around you. Those sitting in the chairs next to you. Those in your home. You are to forgive graciously and freely. Man, this is... Man, that's the type of person I want to be. I, I want us to be the type of church that would be long-suffering. We would bear with one another. That we would be the type of church that would forgive graciously and freely. And a church that knows that we've been set apart, that knows that we are holy and knows that we are loved, all that adds up to grace. And then we are to put on these garments of compassionate hearts, of kindness and humility, meekness and patience, because we are to be clothed in grace, not law. But Paul's not finished. Look at verse 14. And above all these things, put on 
love, which binds together in perfect harmony. And so he says, okay, of all the things you're going to do, the most important one is love. It's the most important garment that you can put on. But this love is so much more than an emotion. This love is a commitment that we are to make to each other. That we as a church are to commit to love one another because we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we should commit to each other. We should vow to fight for one another's faith. We should strive to help each other as we travel on this road to eternity. We are to come together and we are to love. And notice what this love does. It binds everything together in perfect harmony. So love's the belt. I mean, love's the thing that takes the ensemble and it connects it all together. Love is the glue that's going to hold everything together. And he says, in perfect harmony. But there's a problem. We'll never be at a place where we're going to bear with one another perfectly. We're never going to be a place that we forgive each and every time graciously and freely. Because if he did, if we could get there, then Paul would have no need to say in perfect harmony. But we can't get there. What is he talking about? Paul is pushing us to focus on the end result that one day, for all of those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we will finally be able to experience perfect love and we will be able to live with each other in perfect harmony when this world is over and eternity begins. But what we need to learn how to do now is to be clothed in grace, not law. So Paul's now going to show us then, how do you get there? Look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and so be thankful. So he says, let the peace of Christ rule, let it reign, let it rule in your hearts. And the picture is like an umpire that decides whether they're safe or not. He's saying, let the, the peace of Christ, let it decide, let it rule in your heart. So what is the peace of Christ? I think it's a direct link back to what Paul is talking about in verse 12. The peace of Christ is knowing and believing and resting in that you are chosen, holy, and loved. And when you fully believe this, guess what? You are free from everyone's expectations because you know who you are. You're freed from having to prove yourself all the time. And you're freed from trying to earn your way to being fully accepted by God. And when you fully embrace that you are set apart, you are chosen, you are holy, and you are loved, there will be a peace that rests upon you. This peace he's talking about is your identity. And that is what needs to rule our hearts. We need to remind ourselves who we belong to. We need to remind ourselves that we are holy, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. We need to remind ourselves that we are loved. And it doesn't matter what you do or you don't do. But Paul says, let. Let this peace, let your identity rule. Because Paul knows we're our own worst enemies. We are the ones standing almost in our own way. And we simply need to allow this truth to rule our hearts instead of fighting 
against it. And then he says the second thing. So first of all, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Verse 16. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So it says, let, let the word, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Meaning, nothing will transform your life like the words of Christ. There is nothing that can do it like God's word. And Paul says, allow the word of Christ, the teachings that we read in his Bible, to become a part of your nature. Allow his words to fill at home in you. And if you've experienced the grace and the peace of Christ that he is talking about, the word of Christ will fill at home in your heart. And you will discover how rich his words really are. And then he closes with verse 17. And whatever you do in word and in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So it says, whatever it is that you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, every day we wake up, we have to decide, what am I going to wear? I think my daughter asked Marla that every single day. What am I going to wear today? We always say the same thing, clothes. But he's saying, what it, waking up, what is going to rule my life today? Will the peace of Christ, will my identity in him, will his word rule my life? Will I put on the garments of humility and kindness and patience? Because if we're not allowing that peace, if we're not allowing our identity and His Word to rule our lives, we'll have a really hard time displaying grace in everything that we do. Because here's the truth. We are to be clothed in grace, not law. You know, and it's easy to see that this is really grace advice for the church, that's struggling with reverting back to the law. When people are trying to earn their acceptance and they're trying to do everything that they can to show how spiritual they are, it's easy to see how this relates to a church that would be struggling with this. That our acceptance before God is not based on what we do or don't do. That'd be the law or our self-discipline. It's easy to see Paul is talking to them that acceptance it's based on what Christ has done, that we are chosen, we're holy, and we're beloved, and that we just need to rest in that. We need to see that we're accepted because of our identity, and then that peace of who we are, then we put on these garments of compassion and kindness and humility and patience and forgiveness. And man, that is a church that everyone would want to be a part of. But I want to take it to a real personal area. I want to take it into the area of our lives like I said in the beginning that I believe Paul has marriage in mind. Because you flip over the next verse and he's talking about marriage. I believe that thought is all throughout these verses. So I want us to see, I want us to talk about how Paul is talking to the church but not just to the church. I believe he's talking to the marriages that are there. That we could never stress enough that marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. And so as Paul is talking about Christ in the church, he is also talking about marriage because the key to being a successful church is the same key to having a successful marriage. And that is marriage is being clothed in grace, 
not lost. So here, here's where we're going to get practical. You want to know what my marriage needs and you want to know what your marriage needs? We could talk all day long about better communication skills. We could talk a lot about how learning to fight fair. And I mean, there's all kinds of books out there that you can read. And there's some great tools out there. But at the core of every marriage that is going to be successful is knowing how to bear with one another and knowing how to forgive. And if we can get those right, if we can do those better, guess what? Everything else then begins improving. And if those in the church can bear and to forgive, you know what? That's going to be a church that brings God glory. And if a husband and wife can know how to bear with one another and know how to forgive, then that's going to be a marriage that brings God glory. So look now with marriage in mind. Look back at verse 13. Bearing with one another... And if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other, as the Lord forgave you, so you must also forgive. So the two things, bearing with one another or forbearance and forgiving. But bearing with one another is more than just patience. Patience is sitting at the stoplight just waiting for it to turn green. But forbearance, bearing with one another, is patience while being under attack. So it would be like sitting in a red light with a bee in your car, waiting for the light to turn green. But forbearance is patience when you are under attack. So husbands and wives, forbearance is controlling your tongue and emotions when you are being insulted. Forbearance is being patient, controlling your anger when you are late for an event and your spouse is still inside getting ready. Forbearance is being patient when you are being salted and belittled. Forbearance is being patient when your spouse isn't changing. So bearing with them, that is patience even when you're under attack. And when you know what? This is what's happening. Because of this, it's not, it's not something that you have to do. It's even not something you can do. You cannot bear with your spouse in your own willpower. Because when you are being attacked, when you are, it's what's happening, you are coming face to face with the sin of your spouse and your own sin. When your spouse's sins are being directed at you like their anger, their wrath, their malice, their slander, their obscene talk, their lying that Paul was talking about in uh, verse 3 or chapter 3, verse 8. Here's what we have to do. Here's how we bear with someone that when we are being attacked, when we are coming face to face with their sin, the first thing is this. Sin splashes on those around them. You know what? Your wife has a bad day. That day can easily splash on you. When your husband is angry with his job, there's a really good possibility that he's going to bring that anger home with him and it's going to splash on you. But that's what it means to bear with one another's sin. And when that sin comes out and it's directed, it seems like at us, we are to bear it. And then the second thing I think we're to do we need to remind ourselves how forbearing, how bearing with Christ has been with you. 
He endured mental and spiritual and physical attacks without sin. So that when your spouse's sin splashes on you, you would have all the grace you need to respond with patient love and forbearing grace. Meaning it's there. And then he says, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. To me, this right here is the most helpful phrase in today's sermon, but when I think it comes to marriage. Because here's what I can do, and here's what you can do. We can either forgive according to law, or you can forgive according to grace. And here's what forgiving according to law does. Forgiving according to the law says, I will forgive you when you say you're sorry. Forgiving according to the law says, I will forgive you when I see real remorse. Forgiveness according to the law says, I will forgive you when I feel like you've suffered enough. Forgiveness according to the law says, I will forgive when I'm ready. Forgiveness according to the law says, I will forgive when I see a pattern of better behavior. And we like, we like forgiving according to law because we get to be in control. We get to be the ones in charge. But Paul says we are to forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And that's not how Christ forgave you. He didn't forgive you according to the law. Christ forgave us back at the cross. And He forgave us graciously and freely. So here's the painful side. Here's what forgiveness according to grace looks like. Forgiveness according to grace says... I will forgive because I have been forgiven by Christ. Forgiveness according to grace says, I will forgive even before I see remorse. Forgiveness according to grace says, I will forgive and I will not withhold my love and affection for them. Forgiveness according to grace says, I will forgive not because they deserve it, but because it honors my Lord. Forgiveness according to grace says, I will forgive without demanding repayment for the offense done to me because Christ has already paid it. And forgiveness according to grace says, I will never have to forgive my spouse more than Christ has forgiven me. But forgiveness according to grace, you see, it's scary. Forgiveness according to grace causes us to trust God to work in our spouse's lives. And it takes the control out of our hands. Forgiveness according to grace forces us to give control over to God. But God tells us our commands, what we're to do, we're to bear with them. And we are to forgive. Because the truth is we need marriages clothed in grace, not law. And the most attractive thing you can do as a spouse is to put on grace and extend God's grace to you bearing with them and you forgiving them. So I want you to take this with you this morning. You and I bring something into our marriages that is destructive and that what marriages need and must do. Every one of us bring this in and it's our sin. And when your ears hear and your eyes see the sin, the weakness, and the failure of your husband and wife, it's never by accident. 
It's always grace. God loves your spouse and He is committed to transforming him or her by His grace, not law. And He has chosen you. That one that you stood before your family and friends and exchanged vows. That one you are building a life together. He has chosen you to be one of the regular tools of change. But... You and I will never change our spouse. And they will never change us by putting on law. It will only make you bitter and make you resentful. It's only by us putting on the garments of grace that they will be able to be transformed. It's when you put on bearing with them or that forbearance and when you forgive. When you wear those, that's what transforms your spouse. Nothing will transform your spouse like grace. That happens when we bear with them and forgive them with grace and not law. Let's pray. Father, on this morning of Mother's Day, I can think of my mother. I'm thankful for her forbearing, not just with my father, but even with me about how she bared with me through those crying endless nights, how she bared with me through those difficult teenage years, and how she stood that day that my wife and I exchanged vows, and how every day on she has been been bearing with me. But so many times how she has forgiven me and forgiven me graciously and freely. But Father, I know not everyone has that. And so, Father, I pray for them today, whether their mothers are here and maybe they have gone on to be with you, or maybe their mothers and them didn't have good relationships. And, Father, we pray for them. But, Father, I'm thankful that you've put a wife in my life, one that has been far forbearing with me than I've ever had to be with her, and one that has forgiven me more than I've ever had forgiven her. But, Father, I know in both of their lives it is only because of what Christ has done. And so, Father, today, as we think about this, these ideas of bearing with one another, we need more of that in our church. We need to be able to forgive freely and graciously in this church. But, Father, we also need that in our marriages. And so, Father, help us to commit today. Maybe we need to face some real things in our marriage. Maybe we need to forgive something we are holding on to and is only making us bitter. Or maybe we need to go and maybe we need to ask for forgiveness. So, Father, help us to bear with one another as you have bared with us. And help us to forgive as you have forgiven us. Strengthen our marriages today. It's in your Son's name and by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.